So that's our text. So on your study sheet, the very first blank is this. We may have fellowship with God who is life backslash light. Okay, life backslash light. These uh, five verses open to us uh, the first epistle of John to the church. And I think I mentioned this before that 1 John is uh, referred to as a general epistle. And the simple reason for this is because unlike Paul who names a church in his epistles like to Rome or Philippians, uh, John doesn't make a mention of any church. He's talking to the general body of believers, to the church in general. And so that's why it's referred to as a general epistle. But his epistle applies, uh, it would just as well apply to to Philippi or Colossae or any of the other churches. So on your uh, study sheet, uh, I want you to take note that John is writing to the beloved. That'd be First John three. I gave. I think I gave you some verses there. To those who are born of God, the sons of God, and to those whom he often calls little children. Right there tells you who this epistle is written to. It's written to a believer. It's written to us, members of the church. Now he refers to them as little children, not as a judgment call on um, their character or as some measure of their uh, spiritual immaturity, though he does mention uh, three stages of uh, spiritual maturity in chapter 2, and we'll get to that when we get there. But rather, when when he refers to these believers as little children, this is a term of endearment. This is a term of, of love. Uh, our pastor, one of our pastors, Steve uh, Fleshman, whenever he sends out a letter on life issues, he always begins it with beloved, right? Beloved. So that's a term of endearment. So John, by the time that he wrote this epistle, he's a man of great age, uh, both in years and in faith. And he looks upon these uh, fellow believers as his personal charges, right? Uh, Like a father to his own kids. And so therefore, like a father, he he encourages them by love to love one another. And like a father, he exhorts these these folks to holiness, to holiness. So he looks at them as as his personal charges. I also believe that uh, to John, this little children is a special term to him personally because uh, when he was uh, walking with Jesus uh, Jesus himself would often refer to his his own disciples as his uh, as his children as his own little children in John chapter 12 verses 35 through 36 then said then Jesus said unto them yet a little while is the light with you walk while ye have the light Least darkness come upon you, for he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. He says, While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. That ye may be the children of light. This was a term that the Lord had used often whenever he addressed his uh, disciples. In in fact, um, at the Last Supper, 
which was uh, the last Passover, really, if you want to be very technical, uh, he said to, he was speaking to his disciples, and he said in John 13, 33, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye, not, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. So he's saying this to grown, you know, rough, blue-collar men. He calls them little children. That's a term of endearment. He used the same phrase again later on after his resurrection. Remember when Jesus, uh, when Peter says, I go a fishing? So they all climb in the boat. So Jesus is standing on the seashore and he sees them out a little bit out in the water. And he calls out to them in John 21, 5. He says, children, have ye any meat? Have ye any meat? You know, and that's when John realizes, hey, that's, that's the Lord standing on the shore. That's the Lord. So to John, that term children or little children is a very um, personal thing with him. And so he's writing to his fellow children of the light. And it is to these children of the light that he wants to communicate to them that they can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son just as he had fellowship with the, with, the, with the Father and with the Son. But he's also warning them, he's warning these children of light, that there are those who seek to hinder or steal from them this fellowship. He's warning them that there are those out there, due to their darkness, are trying to steal away or hinder their fellowship with the Father. And so he's warning them. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26. 1 John 2, 26. He says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that what? Seduce you. Seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye not that any man teach you. But it has the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Who is that that's abiding within them? It's the spirit of truth. It's the spirit of truth that's abiding in them. It is that spirit that Jesus promised that he would send to them. And so he's telling these, these believers, he says, don't, don't let these folks seduce you. Don't let these folks seduce you. Those who seek to seduce the, the beloved, they abide in darkness. They abide in darkness. And those of us who are the children of light, we shouldn't have fellowship with them. That's what he's saying. We shouldn't have fellowship with them. John is very clear about this. Uh, there is no, when John talks about light and darkness, there is no gray. He's very adamant about this. And so should we be. So should we be. And it's, it, it is this very point of his, of his addressing the beloved... Uh, that uh, the epistle holds such a such a uh, uh, powerful and meaningful place in the church and in individual believers' lives, because even though John is speaking to believers as one body in Christ, the very lack of a word, the very tone of First John, is that it's it's a personal letter. Yes, he's writing to the church body in general, but if you read John's epistle, there's more of an intimate 
face-to-face, person-to-person communication going on here. That's why, you know, one of the things that we do whenever we're discipling somebody, we recommend that they read through 1 John because it is such a personal letter to the believer. It's such a personal letter to the believer. And John's appeal is a personal appeal to each individual believer, each child of the light, each son of God or daughter of God. So on your, on your study sheet, it says, and so John begins his epistle with these words of declaration of affirmation. Declaration of affirmation to counteract the seducers' lies in order to assure the children of light, the beloved, those who are born of God, the sons of God, that they have life and that they may have fellowship with he who is light. So declaration of affirmation is your blank. So that which is from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. And we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, which was manifested unto us. So on your worksheet, the word of life, eternal life, manifested in Jesus Christ. Manifested in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. You know, um, communication. Communication. You know, communication between a man to a man, or a woman to a woman, or a man to a woman. Um, How do you get your feelings? How do you get your emotions? How do you get your thoughts conveyed? Communication. Right? You talk you talk about it. Your communication is the essence of how you feel, the essence of what you're thinking about. It's 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 your emotions, it's your opinions. If you want somebody to to know what's on your heart and mind, what do you do? You open your mouth and you tell them. You tell them. That reveals what's going on inside, you know. Uh, often Diane, uh, you know, I'll get frustrated about something and Diane says, well, if, I can't read your mind, right? Unless you tell me, I can't read your mind. And that's true. That's true. When Jesus was speaking to his men prior to his betrayal and death, uh, Jesus said to them this following statement. He said in John fourteen seven. He says, if you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. That's a pretty remarkable statement for somebody to make. That's a pretty remarkable statement for somebody to make. In fact, it was such a remarkable statement that Philip, he spoke up. Philip saith unto him in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. See, that was an incredible statement that Jesus made, and that prompted Philip to say, Okay, show us the Father, and it'll sufficeth us. Now, according to Strong's, the word sufficeth, 
is kin to a word, and this is on your study sheet, that has the idea of raising a barrier. Something that may be blocking one's view or access. Raising a barrier or opening a door. Okay? Jesus' answer to Philip was this. John 14, 9. Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Remember communication? The words that he spoke are the words that the Father gave to him. You see, Jesus is communicating the Father to these disciples by his person. By his person. Now we'll explore this barrier that prevents men from knowing the Father and the Son in a minute. But allow me to say this barrier is the darkness that men dwell in and the darkness that dwells in men. Alright? There's a darkness that we dwell in and then there's a darkness that dwells within. That's the barrier. That's the barrier. John 1, 4-5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The darkness comprehended it not. So on your study sheet, Jesus Christ, who is the word of life, has lifted that barrier between God and man and has revealed to us the Father. He's lifted that barrier. John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. John 1, 17 and 18, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's removed that barrier. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? What happened in the temple? That veil was torn. Was it torn from the bottom up? Torn from the top down. That barrier has now been removed. That barrier has been lifted. So on your worksheet, in the visible Jesus, the invisible Father has been brought for us, has been brought forth for us to view. Visible and invisible are your two words. You see, the word of life has come to communicate to us the heart and mind of the Father. And the heart and the mind of the Father is grace and truth. That's why it upsets me when I hear sometimes people talk about that Old Testament God. He's such a meanie. No, he's not. He was a very gracious God. I mean, he was dealing with a very headstrong people. They got away with a lot before God had to step in. Jesus Christ came and he displayed the Father who is, who is grace and truth. 
The Gospel of John presents the person of the Son of God to man. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. What is glory? Basically, simply, what is glory? Well, step outside and look at that big shining orb in the sky. It's light. It's light. Jesus Christ is the light, the glory of the Father. The Apostle Paul in his epistles teaches us how a man can be presented before God. John's gospel presents God before men. He is the light. In John's gospel, the subject is God. Eternal life embodied in a man. The Son of God, that eternal life. In his, in his epistle in 1 first, first John, John follows up on this subject showing to us this eternal life. And here's the amazing thing. This eternal life is reproduced in us who believe on the Son of God for salvation. Now I say reproduce because it's not our eternal life. It's His eternal life given to us. We have been made partakers of the divine nature of God. And a part of that divine nature is His eternal life. So he's, re- he's re- reproduced his eternal life in us. Think on that for a moment. That'll just knock your socks off. 1 John 5.12 says, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. You know, often it's a lack of communication or miscommunication or false communication uh, rather than too much communication that causes a breakdown in a relationship. Right? It's, 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 you can't have enough communication. Now some people may disagree. But you can't really have enough that's how you work through issues. As painful as that can be sometimes. You know, in the beginning when God created Adam, the first man, God created Adam with an intelligence. He created Adam with emotion. He created Adam with volition. All of that was so that Adam and God could communicate to one another. Could have that fellowship with one another. Uh, he, was, uh, he gave man a reason so he could understand what it was that God was saying to him. You know, that's why God, uh, that's why Adam was created in the image of God so that they could have this fellowship. You know, when God created Adam, God didn't make just another animal. All right? He made a person, a human being, a, 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 a man with a mind to receive truth and to respond to the truth, to know God. He gave Adam emotions so he could receive love from God and respond to God with love in return. He gave Adam a volition or a will, the ability to choose. Right? When he received revelation from God, he was able to respond to that, choose to respond to that. It's in this way that Adam knew the joy of fellowship with God. 
Remember I talked about Gnosticism? Which is knowledge, enlightenment. The new Gnosticism or the new knowledge, which is nothing more than reheated Gnosticism. It's the same old lie. It is. It's just dressed up differently. And tells us that man is nothing more than just another animal. We've heard it. We've read it. That man is a highly developed animal. Highly evolved in comparison to the other animals upon this planet. But nonetheless, man is just another animal. We've heard it. We're just another, we're really no different than a horse or a whale or a donkey. Some of us maybe, but. Materialist atheism reduces man to the level of an animal. And so, therefore, he denies the, the possibility that we transcend over animals, that we're no different. We're no different. Let me read to you an article that I came across. Um, these, these are folks who are into this stuff. He, this one particular um, scientist says, um, Humans have been deceiving themselves for thousands of years that they're smarter than the rest of the animal kingdom. Despite growing evidence to the contrary, according to the University of Adelaide experts in evolutionary biology, for millennia, all kinds of authorities, from religion to eminent scholars, have been repeating the same idea ad nauseum, that humans are exceptional by virtue that they are the smartest in the animal kingdom. However, science tells us that animals can have cognitive faculties that are superior to human beings. That's what you're paying your kids scholarship for. This is what they're being taught. This is what they're being taught. What this guy's telling us is that he's smarter than all the rest of us. Yeah. There's a lot there to unpack. So the new Gnosticism teaches all species of living beings are, are equivalent. No one is superior to the others. There are no criteria that make it possible to compare the importance of different species. Man is not superior to any other mammal on the planet. Some objections to racism and sexism should be applied to non-human species in equality of rights. Now we're hearing that, guys. That's what PETA is all about. Uh, evolution has no direction. Evolution has no purpose other than to pass on the genes of a species. Right? It simply happens. There's no reason to assume that evolution comes about with some objective improvement in mind, because it's a mindless thing. And the only thing that is constantly improving is the adaptability of individuals to their given environment. Again, there's your comparison between the animal kingdom and human beings. That's all it is. We're just better at adapting our environment. How do they explain a lion eating a zebra or a fox eating a chicken? How do they explain anything? <laughs> it gives them reason to go for abortion and euthanasia. There you go. That's the new Gnostic. That's the new Gnosticism. If evolution. So yeah, so exactly, exactly what you're saying. You can easily see how this teaching, this enlightenment, you know, 
it has robbed from man his uniqueness in the world. It has successfully stolen from man his dignity. Just made him no different than any other animal. And since he's no different than any other animal, then there's no creator in order for man to have fellowship with. If evolution has no other purpose than to pass on the genes, then man is born, he lives, he dies like any other animal, and then he passes on into oblivion. That's life. That's life. Then the only joy that man can know in this life is joy that he creates for himself. And that's why you see a lot of this craziness going on. That's why we have a lot of narcissistic people running the show. And it's no wonder that some look to death as a release because they look at life as a bondage, as a toil, as a toil. And if somebody is unable to create this joy for themselves or if this joy has been taken from them or they've lost this joy, then so goes the whole purpose for living. And so life becomes a burden, becomes a toil. Why, work, why live a life like this? And so what do they do? They end it by their own hand. That's the logical progression of this new Gnosticism. On your study sheet, God created Adam with the ability to fellowship with God. And this fellowship was made possible through, commun- through communication as Adam would meet with God in the cool of the day in the garden and speak with God. But one day, God arrived on time. He's never late. He's there for his appointment with Adam, but Adam was A-W-O-L. Wasn't he? In fact, Adam was hiding. He was in hiding. Uh, This time of fellowship that Adam once looked forward to in meeting with God, now Adam avoided. He didn't look forward to it. Why? What happened? What happened? Yeah, exactly. What happened was darkness was introduced into this fellowship sin. He became woke. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he swallowed that. They swallowed that lie, and they became woke. So, on your worksheet or a study sheet, whatever you want to call it, sin had entered the relationship. Instead of enjoying the light and wanting to fellowship with the light, Adam was now hiding in darkness. For darkness had taken residence in Adam's heart. And so since darkness had taken residence in Adam's heart, that's why Adam was hiding in the shadows of the trees and the bushes. Because that was his nature now. He kind of created his own thick leaf religion. Yep, he did. He knew that he created, you know, something was wrong. Yep. Yep. Tried to correct it. Tried to correct it on his own. Again, that's some new Gnosticism that we're going to look at. It's, it's the same old stuff. Same old stuff. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. John chapter 3. Sin had now entered into the relationship. Darkness was now introduced into this situation. Darkness had filled Adam's heart. 
He was hiding in the darkness because he couldn't meet with God who is light. John 3, 19-20 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That's Adam in a nutshell. The word loved, as in men love darkness rather than light, is the Greek word agapeo. Now, okay, big deal. Well, the Greeks had three words for love. They had eros, which is your sexual, physical manifestation. Then they had phileo, which is a brotherly love. And then they had agapeo, which is that highest standard of loving. You love for love's sake. Well, that's the kind of love that men have towards darkness rather than light. They love, they agapeo that darkness. And they hate that light. They hate that light. This created a major schism in this relationship between God and man. For where there is light, darkness cannot abide. For where there is light, darkness cannot abide. So on your worksheet, the word condemnation, here in John 3.19, is the Greek word chrysis, from which we get the word crisis. Now what is a crisis? A crisis is a turning point. It's a fundamental cause of a change that results in a paradigm shift of monumental impact. Kind of like 9-11. That was a major paradigm shift. This latest pandemic, that was a ma- that's a major paradigm shift in this, in this, on this globe, in this world. It's a decisive or critical moment in a relationship as well as in history that is a game changer. Game changer. So on your study sheet, God desires to have fellowship with man. And now this fellowship has been ruthlessly disrupted by man's sin. A crisis has now occurred that changed everything in the relationship that once existed in the light and has now been separated by darkness. It's a game changer. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. A crisis had occurred in the beginning in creation, and God had to put everything back together. And now a crisis has occurred in his relationship with man. A crisis has occurred between his relationship between God and man, and man has now been plunged into a formless void of darkness. What could be done? What could be done about this breach in fellowship? How could man be reconciled once again to God that man may once again know the joy of fellowship he once experienced? Genesis 1-3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. That's the solution. That's the solution. Fast forward in time, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 4, 1, 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, splendor, brightness, light. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God sent forth his light. 
That is the solution to the darkness that dwells within and the darkness that dwells without. Just as God came to Adam in the garden and Adam heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, the word has come incarnate, embodied in material form in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the word of life, to dwell among men. Praise God. Praise God. So on your worksheet, the word came so that man could once again be restored to fellowship with God who is light. Restored. John 1.5 says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So on your study sheet... With the coming of Jesus Christ, light has again been revealed to man. And the relationship once severed due to man's sin is now restored between God and man through the word. Revealed and restored are your two words. Turn to John chapter 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Raise your hand when you're there. All right. Now look at John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have assurance, shall have the light of life. I see three things there that are crucial for us to walk in the light. He that followeth me, discipleship shall not walk in darkness, fellowship, but shall have the light of life, assurance. Discipleship, fellowship, and assurance. All three of these is what John addresses in his epistle. Because this is what we need to combat the darkness that's trying to steal from us, give us their enlightenment, to take away from us this fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son. Discipleship, fellowship, and assurance. In John's Gospel, we are introduced to him who is light, who is sent by the Father to dispel the darkness that separates man from God. John 12, 46 says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Darkness is no longer our environment if you are a child of God. But why do we like that darkness? Why do we keep going back? On your worksheet, I'm going to just kind of call it a worksheet. That's what I call it in HBI. In John's epistle, he desires that the beloved, the children of light, would comprehend that the darkness has been dispelled by the light that it cannot comprehend. That this light has now come in the person of the word of life, that eternal life, and that we may have assurance of a joint fellowship 
with God who is light. John is anxious that the beloved understand this. He is anxious. Why? What is the cause of John's intensity? You can't help but read John's intensity in this epistle. It's because of those who want to steal away that fellowship. This darkness is always attempting to ruin the fellowship that we have with the Father. Always. It is unrelenting. It is subtle. It is crafty. It never stops. And that's what gets us in trouble. That's what gets us in trouble. The darkness is always attempting to ruin that fellowship between the beloved and the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. There are many, many Antichrists out there, folks. And some of them look pretty good. So John declares in his gospel that God has met the crisis of darkness and that light has come. And in his epistle, John declares that we who know the light can know the joy and fellowship with him who is light. How can John be so certain of this? How can can he be so confident about this? Because there are so many people today saying, oh, you really cannot know for sure. You cannot be certain. What are they doing? They're introducing what? Doubt. Right? So how can, John, how can John be so sure? In him was life and the life was the light of men. Because he was there. He was there. We have an eyewitness first-hand report of someone who was there. 1 John 1, one that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. So on your worksheet, the word of life experienced by the apostles. You know, John wrote in his gospel, John 20, verses 30 through 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. I think I have a little chart there. The gospel according to John and then the first general. Okay. So the first blank is uh, the gospel according to John gives, gives the gospel. That's your first blank under the gospel. Under the epistle, the first general epistle of John reinforces, reinforces the gospel. So gives the gospel, reinforces the gospel. The gospel reveals to man life. The epistle tells how to enjoy eternal life. The gospel says man can have life because the Father declares it, declares it so. The epistle tells us how to experience eternal life through fellowship with the Father and the Son. Under the gospel, life manifested in the Son comes by faith in the Son. 
In the epistle, that fellowship is not possible without eternal life. The gospel provides evidence to arouse faith. The epistle speaks of experience to assure fellowship. The gospel presents Jesus as the source of eternal life to unbelievers. The epistle presents Jesus as that eternal life to those who believe. John's gospel addresses salvation. John's epistle encourages fellowship. John's gospel is written to unbelievers. John's epistle is written for believers. John's gospel tells us how to receive eternal life to those who do not possess it. John's epistle, how eternal life is manifested or shown by those who possess it. John's gospel promises joy. And John's epistle is proof, proof of joy. So John, did you get all of that? I love my lists. Okay. So um, John writes, that which was from the beginning. God is the source of all life. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. Don't fall asleep on me yet. <laughs> in John 1 it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth in John 1 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men so on your worksheet this life which God is was manifested to men through the word of life that is Jesus Christ the son of God so on your worksheet, I'll wait until you're done. We all done? Good to go? Okay. Yes, sir. This life which God is was manifested to men through the word of life. Thank you. You're welcome. So the next one is, there is no life apart from God, for God is the giver of life. Ergo, there is no eternal life apart from the Son, for the Son is that eternal life. Now John presents all of this as a fact. It's not open for debate. Not open for debate. John 19.35, And he that saw it, bear record. And his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that, he, that ye might believe. John 21.24, This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He says, hey guys, what I'm telling you is truth. It's fact. You don't have to debate it. You don't have to doubt it. It's truth. I'm telling you, it's truth. I've seen it. John states it this way, because there are those who deny 
what John knows is true, saying that it's not true. We have those folks today. He had them in his day, we have them today. There's always those who dwell in darkness and hate the light. We're always going to have those folks. 1 John 2.22, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. We've got a lot of folks dressed up in religious garb, but if you listen to them, they're not preaching the same Jesus that you, that you know. Another gospel. Another gospel. Another Jesus. Yeah. And it's the classic case of the liar calling the one telling the truth a liar and that the lie being proffered is actually the truth to be believed. Don't ask me to repeat that. But you understand what I'm saying? We see it in politics. We see it in religion. We see it in education. It's everywhere. That's, that's what scares me so much with false teachers who, I see them, you know, different things, you know, some people saying, oh yeah, they're a false teacher. And I'm like, oh yes, but they've gone to Africa and saved Exactly. Them. And so, so all these people in Africa think they're saved, yep. but yet they believed in the wrong yep. teaching. And yes, they're, they're ministers of light. And how much the harder will it be to win those people when yep. they think they're already saved? Yeah. It's also kind of interesting, and we're kind of, I'm kind of getting off of my notes here, but it's also kind of inter- interesting too because the true Bible-believing Christians will go in and they'll evangelize a region and they'll get all these folks to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know who follows? Your cults, your Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, your, all the others. They don't go in to evangelize. What they do is they go in and dupe weak-believing Christians into their cult. It happens right here in America. It happens right here in America. There are a lot of folks who are a part of these cults weren't born into it. They were seduced into it. These were believers who should know their Bibles, but they don't know their Bibles. And because they don't know their Bibles, they get seduced into these cults. That's my little soapbox. You know, uh, I'll stop. I'll stop. This is why in the very beginning of this epistle, John is drawing, drawing the line of truth in the dust. He says, this is it, folks. This is the truth. That's what you stand on. That's what you stand on. There is no life apart from God. For God is the giver of life. There is no eternal life apart from the Son. For the Son is that eternal life. That's the way it is. I'm sorry if you don't agree with that. I'm sorry, Joel Osteen, if, if you don't want to go into that. But that is the truth. And how is it that you tell how is it that you say that you love someone and you don't tell them that truth? Then you really don't love them. You really don't love them. Modern Gnosticism. This is on your worksheet. Modern Gnosticism today teaches that Jesus is an embodiment of the supreme being who was sent by the supreme being to impart not salvation but knowledge to man. Remember that's salvation with the Gnostic. It's knowledge not atonement. Now what they mean by this is not what you, is not what you might take it to mean. This embodiment of the supreme being was the Christ in Jesus. This Christ was the divine while Jesus was merely the human. Don't forget that. Because that's the teaching that's very prevalent in a certain so-called Christian group. 
that the Christ is the divine and Jesus is the human and the two never meet. Is that what the Bible teaches? But yet there are thousands upon thousands of people that fall into this. Jesus, who is merely a human being, ordained a higher level of spiritual enlightenment. In fact, the highest level of enlightenment. And due to the Christ, the divine in him, that came on him when he was baptized, remember the Holy Ghost coming down in the form of a dove? That's when the Christ supposedly, according to some of this teaching, came into Jesus the man. And then after that happened, then he begins to teach his disciples how to attain this same enlightenment. Is that what you read in the Gospels? That's what they make it sound like. On your worksheet, the modern Gnostics teach that all human beings contain a piece of Christ or God in them, a divine spark, and that this divine spark, my knowledge, becomes brighter as one gains enlightenment. There is a certain sect of Christianity that teaches that you are little gods. This is why you sometimes read about those who claim that, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've read several that, that believe this. They believe that during the silent years of Jesus growing up, he left his home in Nazareth and traveled to the far east to India and learned from the mystics. And then he brought what he learned from the mystics back and taught that to his disciples. That is out there. That is out there. And there are folks who buy into it. This divine spark in man is aided to shine brighter by denying self, doing good works, through meditation and prayer, as well as other spiritual disciplines designed to feed the spark of God within. Remember I told you one of the extremes is asceticism. And guess what? You don't need to flog your back bloody to be an ascetic. Because there are Christians who go to Baptist, Bible-believing Baptist churches that do this very thing. In what way? Well, there are, fo- okay, there are folks who believe that they get closer to God through giving more. Or sir, in other words, what is that? Is that a relationship of grace and love with God? Or is that a relationship of duty and works and therefore God owes me because of what I've done? Yeah. A kind of modified asceticism. Yeah. Yeah. If only I pray more, read my Bible more, become involved in church more, give more, eat right, do right, fast often. If I don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go out with girls that do. That type of thing. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they attain a level of acceptance with God, a, a level of an enlightenment with God that God can't help but bless me because how lucky is God to have me? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Seed of faith. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Paul fought against it, wrote against it in Colossians. He says, you know, he's talking about those folks, touch not, taste not, handle not. There are folks in Bible-believing Christian churches that are that way. That way. They sound spiritual, but is it really empowered by the unction of the Holy One dwelling within? 
And is it not really empowered more by the fleshly nature of a man? Right? Uh, the egotistical self-centeredness of man who seeks to receive glory for themselves rather than to live to glorify God. That's a real thin line. And it's easy to cross over one side or the other. It really is. The same fleshly effort is manifested in much of uh, modern Gnosticism today, whether you're, it's secular or religious. You know? So on your worksheet, the modern Gnostic seeks to eradicate sin, which is defined by the modern Gnostic as ignorance. Ignorance is the chief sin of the Gnostic. And this sin or ignorance can be done away through knowledge. I mean, a man commits sin not because of his sin nature, simply because he doesn't know any better. We've heard that. Well, he just doesn't know any better. That's why he behaves that way. He just doesn't, he's, he's not educated enough. So that's why, you know, he does this and that. He just doesn't know any better. She just doesn't know any better. That's why they kill their mom and dad and go on a crime spree. It's because they just, you know, they didn't have the same advantages as others had. Titus 3, 4 says, But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In the Gnostic's mind, redemption is no longer a work of God and man's salvation, but a work of man with God cooperating in his salvation. So instead of God being the Savior, he's simply cooperating with you as you save yourself. As you save yourself. On your worksheet, for the modern Gnostic, atonement is only accomplished through knowledge. Modern Gnosticism's goal is to free men of the ignorance that entraps them in their poverty of incomprehension. You just don't understand. So that, you know, they, so that man can shine to their full potential and be like the supreme being they're meant to become. Gosh, that sounds so familiar. What did the, the serpent say to Eve? See, God doesn't want you eating that tree because he knows the day you do, you will be as he is, as God. Same old stuff, folks. Just dressed up a little differently. If one can perceive this modern Gnosticism at work in our society, in our government, and even our churches, then you can begin to understand why biblical Christianity is so scorned and persecuted. Um, Whether the source of persecution is from the secular realm or it's from the religious realm, biblical Christianity is seen as a threat. Why? Simply because we believe that this book contains the truth. That's why. That's why. We believe the truth. We preach the truth. We worship the God who is truth. The Bible-believing Christian, and I know you've seen this and heard this, the Bible-believing Christian is considered ignorant and stupid and uneducated. 
Why? Simply because they believe the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I know some extremely intelligent Christians. Extremely intelligent Christians who have very sound reasons why they believe the Bible is true. But yet, because they believe the Bible is true, they're still considered ignorant by the majority of the world. It's on your worksheet. In the mind of modern Gnostic biblical Christianity is unredeemable. Because biblical Christianity persists to remain in its ignorance by holding to the word of God as its authority and the word of life for its salvation. Here go. Since biblical Christianity is unredeemable, therefore it must be opposed, it must be rejected, and it must be canceled. It must be. And then on your worksheet, this light and darkness are, here's a big word, diametrically, diametrically opposed to each other. In other words, there's no meeting in the middle, folks. There's no meeting in the middle. And I'm going to have to stop there. Honey, it's almost a quarter after and people are going to start showing up. I'm restrained to the, to the place that we meet. Don't look at me like that. I can't help it. <laughs> what does the hitch pen have to do with I'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to have to stop for for the uh, for the folks coming in. So, so next week we'll we'll continue. No, no, we won't. Next week is Lord's Supper. So you'll have to wait it wait another week. Two weeks. Yeah. Unless you give me a hundred bucks and then I'll no. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>